and welcome back to the Business Podcast. I'm Edith Chakraborty. This week, City Minister Lord Miner says lazy and complacent bankers still haven't learnt the lessons of the credit crunch. We hear directly from the Minister in Charge of Financial Services. Plus, Brussels confirms it's pondering a European version of the International Monetary Fund. And it's daggers at dawn as the Red Knights prepare for battle in their bid for control of Manchester United. This is a business from The Guardian. This week, Gordon Brown said the absence of women from the boards of Britain's top companies was, and I quote, completely unacceptable. Well, we're not sure what the PM's views are when it comes to panels on top business podcasts, but sadly, we're also on the phallocentric side this week. Niels Prattley's The Guardian's financial editor, Larry Ellitz, our economics guru, and Tom Clark's social affairs lead writer and co-presenter of the Politics Weekly podcast. Thank you all for slumming it with us today. We'll hear from you in a sec. But we're going to start this week with a city where Lord Miners has launched a blistering attack on lazy and complacent, his words, financiers, who he says are responsible for Britain's deepest economic crisis in half a century. The city minister warned of a further downturn unless steps were taken to curb free market fundamentalism. He promised that the Labour government would block excessive pay and come down on bankers whose firms have been bailed out by the taxpayer. Well, Paul Miners is on the line now from the Treasury. And Paul, when you criticise free market fundamentalism in the city, do you agree that it wasn't just city bankers, but it was city regulators and even government ministers who also come to lure free market fundamentalism? Well, I, when I, you say I attack free market fundamentalism, I'm asking questions um, to address circumstances in which the market may not necessarily produce the right outcomes, uh, particularly the prevalence of herding, where everybody seems to be doing the same things. And this in itself can build up systemic risk. So this is an area where, where markets may not be working well. Uh, certainly shareholder engagement and shareholder oversight of major companies has been seriously lacking. And one can say that regulators themselves were to some extent captured by the prevailing wisdom that markets would always produce the right answers. Well, markets don't always produce the right answers. They actually, in the way they operate, tend to exaggerate valuations. They tend to be pro-cyclical in their impact. Um, And of course, markets will never ever deliver all the correct outcomes uh, for people uh, who are less well off in society. And by regulators, do you mean the FSA, the Bank of England, previous city ministers? Well, I certainly would uh, include the FSA because the FSA have themselves admitted in the uh, very good and forensic review that they produced after the failure of Northern Rock that their own oversight had been uh, lacking in some respects. Uh, And I think uh, the Bank of England is also aware of the fact that in its conduct of monetary policy, um, the focus on retail inflation, uh, where they were clearly very successful, um, needs in the future to be moderated by an awareness of what's happening to asset values. And that's a view not just about the Bank of England, uh, but also about other central banks. And what about government? What about city ministers? Um, I really wasn't here when um, other city ministers at work, so I couldn't possibly comment on what they did. Okay, uh, you've made a series of strong speeches, of which this is the latest, in which you've attacked uh, fund managers for not taking an active enough interest in the companies they've owned. You've attacked investment bankers for being too keen on looking at fees rather than good long-term interests of the companies that they advise. What is actually going to happen to change the state of affairs? Well, I don't think I go around attacking people. Um, I'm cajoling shareholders to think and act like owners. I'm addressing the fact that 
we have a phenomenon which I've characterized as being the ownerless corporation. Our major companies are owned by institutional investors worldwide who in most cases own less than 1% of an individual company. They own 1% of its competitors. They own 1% of its customers, 1% of its suppliers. And nobody seems to think about themselves as the ultimate owner of the business. As a result of that, uh, agents boards of directors, executives, traders in banks, um, have perhaps been given more freedom than an enlightened, engaged and committed owner um, would, uh, would agree to. As far as investment banks are concerned, I'm simply observing um, that investment banks seem to take quite a large rent out of the system as the price for intermediation and I'm asking whether that rent is appropriate and whether the other players including institutional investors are being demanding enough in terms of the pricing of uh, their arrangements and, uh, and dealings with investment banks. Okay, but nearly two years on from the start of the credit crunch, we're still in a position where uh, a British manufacturer, Cadbury's, is taken over by an American firm for no good reason that anyone, either the company or a lot of investors can see. Well, I, I don't want to talk about the specifics of, of an individual transaction, and I certainly don't want to sound xenophobic. I think the issues around takeovers uh, don't relate just to acquisitions by foreign purchasers or by private equity. I think there's a reasonable argument that can be advanced that a predilection to sell companies in takeovers, which is a phenomenon I've noted throughout my career as far as institutional investors are concerned, seems to be driven by trying to capture little increments of short-term performance with little regard for the long-term um, value of the portfolio and the best interests of, of the fund manager's clients. Um, my contention throughout my career as a fund manager was that it was always difficult to find really good companies in whose shares to invest, but once I'd found them, I wanted to hold them forever. Paul Miners, thank you very much. Thank you. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Larry, Nils and Tom, you're all listening there. Larry, what's your reaction to that? Well, I thought the interview you gave there was actually a lot weaker and more circumscribed than the lecture he gave (laughs) earlier. The speech was actually quite hard-hitting and probably the strongest attack on market fundamentalism uh, I've seen by from any, any Labour minister, from any government minister since the start of the crisis, and I was remarkably cheered by that. I was somewhat less cheered by his equivocation in that interview, where he seemed to be backtracking a bit. But I thought that uh, what he said in the the first part of that lecture was absolutely spot on, um, and it's right to finger um, policymakers as well as the market participants for being believers in market fundamentalism. In the, in the uh, lecture, if not there, he, he was actually very robust about it. And, and I was hoping actually it would be a bit more about how to tackle it. I thought that actually some of the, the policy prescription was in the lecture was a bit less thought out than the attack was. But I thought it was a, certainly a step in the right direction. Nils, Paul just said there that uh, he doesn't go around attacking people, but he's not very well liked in the city or amongst his former fund manager colleagues, is he? 
no, he's not. I mean, I think he's respected, but I think um, a lot of fund managers have grown weary of uh, his comments about uh, ownerless corporations and the herding instincts of fund managers. But I think it's fair to say that the truth hurts a little bit. I think Miners is basically right on, the, on, on, on uh, his analysis that those herding instincts are far too prevalent in the city. Uh, he's right that um, the underwriting fees uh, commanded by investment banks are far too high and have not even returned to pre-2007 levels. Um, and he's right that um, a, lo- a lot of fund managers are not taking enough interest in uh, bonuses, for example, paid by banks and are failing to make the connection between the miserable returns that they've had from bank shares and the enormous um, uh, payments that have been made to the, the employees of their staff. So I think he's right to call for a, a lot more anger. The difficulty, of course, is that you put your finger on is that um, if he's not going to force them to do it, it's quite hard to see how it's going to happen. And Tom Clark, co-presenter of the Excellent Politics Weekly podcast. Uh, let's go back to something that Larry just said, which is uh, that this is a, a pretty strong attack on fu- market fundamentalism by a government minister, I mean, one of the strongest that he's seen since Lehman Brothers fell over in 2008. I mean, to what extent do you think Paul Miners fits into this kind of story of a Labour government going left after the crisis? Well, I think it is true that he was saying, albeit in, I think, quite dry and... Um, technocratic language a number of things that were quite interesting he was saying you've got a form of capitalism with no capitalists in it roughly i think he was saying that the regulators have been captured and he was saying that inflation targeting which is the whole brown thing about you know we made the bank of independent england independent and we've enjoyed continuous growth used to be the brown thing you know he was so he was he was kind of opening up a lot of quite big questions all be kind of all be with this kind of dry language and, and an awful lot of caveats around it and this strange insistence in the guardian piece this morning saying um actually it comes back to the morality of individual men and women and moral hazard and all of that and yeah. all that stuff yeah. but yeah i think it was interesting and i think it's something you couldn't imagine a treasury minister saying three four years ago um so it's good it's it's progress um but um unless it's kind of done more consistency more consistently and with a spicier language it's not going to get through and of course labor looks like it's on track to lose the election so it could become a slightly kind of marginal and forgotten thing quite soon okay thank you all you can read more comment and analysis on this at guardian.co.uk slash the business and now some music We'll come on to early 90s indie dance later, but first to Brussels. European Commission's confirmed it's toying with the idea of setting up a version of the International Monetary Fund to bolster the Eurozone's financial stability. Germany's leading the initiative, which is one of several plans aimed at preventing another crisis, like the one that's brought Greece to the brink of financial meltdown. So, Nils, is this idea of an EMF unbelievable see what i just did i, I, I see what you did um i think it's unbelievable i, I would say something else i mean i think the timing is very odd as well i mean here we are where the the, the european leaders are trying to present a united front that um a bailout for greece is not necessary and that you, you know really all that's re- required is uh, for the greeks to adopt some uh, austerity measures but at the same time they seem to be indulging in this wishful thinking that they could have this body that could could come in and uh, and uh bail out things and uh, that sends a terribly terribly weak message to the markets and i think you know the speculators will be salivating that this sort of uh, you know really confused message coming from brussels larry arguably 
this is the first the financial crisis was the first really big test for the eurozone since its creation and it failed and now what you're left with is governments and regulators trying to come up with ways to put it back together again and come up with better institutions for it do you think the emf will help that um well it could um i think you're right that the crisis has underlined the basic problem with uh, the single currency, which is it's not underpinned by any um, fiscal institutions. I mean, it's, it has no budgetary underpinning, which means that in the event of a crisis, there's little help that can be given to a constituent member. So <clears throat> the one way of getting around that would be to allow the IMF to come in, which does have the firepower to come in and help a country. Um, Europe finds that um, an uncongenial um, message, really. It's, you know, for them, it's a family affair. So the IMF is not allowed in. So if you haven't got the institutions and you won't allow the IMF in, then you've got to create your own version of the IMF. That, that's, the, that's the logic of it. Um, and I think that you know, there are quite a lot of people, not just in Brussels, but in the capitals of Europe, who would see the logic of that, but would then say there are two big problems here one is how do you get this thing through i mean this is a big step towards a federal europe um, which is a big problem in itself and the second thing is how do you actually design it to actually do something that's progressive and good in economic policy because as i understand it this is going to be uh, have all the problems of the imf and then some because it's going to be very germanic in its in its uh, in its makeup it's going to be harshly deflationary and any country that wants to take advantage of uh, of the mf will pay a very high price for doing so so i think that there are um, I can see why there, why it's a um, a logical step, but I see very, very big problems in the in getting from where we are now to where they want to get to. And Tom, mm. even before you get to how the MF will work in practice, to even get one set up might well in, involve renegotiating the Lisbon Treaty. I mean, do you think there's much appetite <laughs> among European voters for something like that? It's been about six or seven years, I think, since Gistard d'Estaing kind of first put forward the idea of the European Constitution. And, you know, that has don't, that's the rewriting of the rules by which um, Europe governs itself. And uh, it's taken, yeah, six or seven years of introspection and navel-gazing to get that through. It's a bit, a bit like the Labour Party in the early 1980s, where all they talked about was what the rule book for the Labour Party should be like. Um, and so, um, as I understand it, um, Merkel obviously facing big political pressure in Germany, not that she's bailing out the Greeks, is saying, yes, there needs to be some kind of deal here. And, uh, yeah, of course, that would take a new institution, which means a new treaty, and so be it. Whereas in France, they're kind of saying, steady the horses a minute. We, 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 we Can't we put some kind of fix in place so that we don't quite need to go through another six years of pain immediately after, after completing the last six? Um, I mean, there's clearly a case for it, exactly as Larry says. You know, you've got an economic authority but not a political authority to balance it. That's giving you all kinds of problems. And, uh, you know, having the IMF come into part of Europe but not all of Europe would be a big undermining and a big threat to the Eurozone sovereignty. Um, So it needs an institution, but the question is, is it too paralysed to to create one? I mean, the the problem, as I see it, is that there would be no... Sanction. There'd be sanctions against a country that was in trouble, but there'd be no ultimate sanction against the Germans to actually reflate their economy. This is, goes right back to the original IMF, mm. where there was a huge argument between the Brits and the Americans about whether both creditors and debtor nations should actually do something in the event of a crisis. And the Americans And then. the Americans won then, uh, ironically, given that they're now a big debtor nation. They actually said all the pressure should come on the debtor nations to make the adjustment. And that, that's what the... Pro- if, if the new EMF were to, were to change 
change that arrangement and say to the Germans, look, you've got to reflate your economies to help some of the struggling nations like Greece and Portugal and Spain, then that would be a really big step forward. But there's no indication whatsoever that the Germans are interested in redressing that design flaw in the original IMF. If they did so, that would be great news. And it's um, it's, it's just very hard to do, isn't it? Because as in 1944 or whenever it was, you know, there's a, a, a bust com- country and a, a com- country that's not bust, and they've got to do a deal, and the whip hands the country yeah. that's not bust. Yeah, and well, that was that was why the Americans actually called the shots in 1944. They were the the world's biggest creditor nation, and they could tell everybody else what to do, and they did. And that's exactly what the Germans would do in in the, in this circumstances. They are the paymasters to the rest of Europe. Okay, Tom, you can leave now, but first you have to tell us all about something that's happening in your Politics Weekly podcast. <coughs> Uh, well, we're going live and on the road. First stop, Manchester, um, in the run-up to the election. So if you want to come in here, Mike White and John Harris and Polly Toynbee talk about the big issues of the campaign. And um, Tom Clark, one might say. Uh, and Allegra Stratton. Um, <laughs> go on to www.guardian.co.uk forward slash politics weekly and buy your tickets for an eye-watering £5. A bargain. Tuesday the 16th of March and we've put a link on our blog with the rest of the details. Now, a more sporty pair than Niels and Larry Elliott you'll struggle to find, so we're going to finish this week with a brief chat about football. Last week, a group of six investors calling themselves the Red Knights pledged around £1.5 billion to buy Manchester United from its current owners. High-profile Red Knights include Goldman Sachs chief economist Jim O'Neill, who was a member of United's board until the Glazer family bought us out in 2005. Niels, you've been following this story. Tell us why people love United but hate the Glazers. Well, people love United because they do. You know, that's, that's, people love their football clubs. The reason why they hate uh, the Glazers is they see somebody who has come in with uh, uh, a, a lot of ambition and uh, put, put a lot of debt onto the uh, club uh, in order to make a lot of money for himself. They feel, they feel that uh, too much money is being extracted from the club in the form of interest payments and other things and too little being spent on investing in the club. He's also unpopular, Malcolm Glazer, because he... Uh, doesn't bother to talk to the fans about anything. So Glaze, the Glazers bought the club what, just over five years ago and they've since loaded up with over £700 million of debt. They used the debt to buy, buy the club. I think it was roughly, uh, they put in about £250 million of equity and the rest was pretty much debt. What on earth was the board doing selling it to the Glazers at the time if that was their business plan? And now people like Jim O'Neill, who was on the board at the time, wants to buy it back. Well, the board at the time was, was, was of course, a, it, was a, it was a public company and the board of uh, directors of public companies are under on a fiduciary duty to get the best value for shareholders. Um, if if uh, the buyer is willing to pay cash and pay over the odds, um, you know, up to a point they're on a bound to, to take that cash and um, not look too hard at where the, um, the cash is coming from um, in terms of borrowings. Is it naive for fans to assume there'll be any these red knights will be any different from the Glazers? Yeah, I think there is there is a good reason to believe that they're willing to put in some 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 of their own cash, which presumably would be in the form of equity. I, mean, I should say we've seen very little about what the structure of a, a proposal, uh, a take a proposal would look like, but presumably it would be uh, include more equity and less debt. The people buying into shares in that structure would be quite happy to accept a a far lower rate of return than the Glazers would be, which in theory would put less pressure on Manchester United, the football club. It's quite an irony there, isn't there? Because people like Jim O'Neill and Red Knights in their normal business would be saying we must maximise returns, we must run any business and uh, to the most efficient 
means possible and extract the maximum amount of value out of it. Football, as they say, is a funny old game, really, because people expect people to run it along what normally because it's to be non-business lines and therefore sort of subsidise the fans and plough much more investment into the business than you're actually going to get in, in, in the way of revenues. It's kind of strange, isn't it, how these, these people, sort of normally the most hard-nosed of people, uh, are prepared to take over a business and, pr- and profess to run it along grounds that they would never allow another business to be run. It is. It's, um, it's very strange. It's strange, too, that um, Goldman Sachs has just raised, uh, helped uh, the Glazers to raise $500 million via bond, yes, bond issue and that the chief economist is running around town saying he wouldn't touch that bond issue with the barge pole. Uh, I mean, there's lots and lots of ironies here. Do the Glazers actually want to sell? They say that the club is not up for sale. Uh, and so I then nothing's going to happen in this deal? If they are sincere in that statement, then nothing would happen. But, uh, you know, in the real world, I mean, every business is for has sale, a the, uh, you know, has a price. If, if the Red Knights were to come along and pay a really uh, extraordinary price, offering a really extraordinary price to the Glazers, presumably the Glazers would take it. But I think, you know, the Glazers would say that price would really have to be quite extraordinary. Uh, in which case, it's quite hard to see... Whether, to see how the Red Knights are really going to raise so much money that they can make such a proposal to the Glazers. Uh, it's hard to see how the, how, how the Glazers would sell in the current circumstances. I mean, United is a very good long-term business, isn't it? It's got a fantastic brand. It's, got, you know, it's, it's earned loads of money over, over many, many decades, over more than a century. Therefore, why would you, if you're the Glazers, why would you sell it at the absolute bottom of the, of the market? You'd wait for things to pick up, and then you, you'd, you'd, if you wanted to sell, you'd sell for a... A much higher price, wouldn't you? I mean, I just they don't need they don't need to sell, so they'd have to be such an extraordinary yeah. price offered that you know that would sort of cripple the Red Knights anyway. You would think you, know. you would have thought yeah the price would have to be extraordinary. You would have thought the Glazers are really if if they are really wanting to own for five ten years, they're probably thinking about the day possibly in which the media rights system currently, uh, collapses and that United can command even more money for their uh, for their games. Yeah, the alternative theory is that. Uh, that the Glazers could be brought to the negotiating table if the fans get very nasty. I mean, I think we're quite a long way from a boycott of games being being regarded as a sort of realistic prospect. But uh, that's one way in which the plot could potentially go. But as I say, I think we're quite a long way from that. OK, thank you, Niels. Thank you, Larry. There's more on the Red Knights and football finance by our award-winning sports team at guardian.co.uk slash sport. And on that note, it's time to say goodbye. There are links to all of our stories on our blog. I'm Adit Chakraborty, and that was The Business.